Guru Nation, welcome to episode 395 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trails Guru. In this episode, Chris and I are talking to our Site Owner Academy students about site selection visits and what that entails, specifically from a site perspective. So this is for the research sites out there, but there's also stuff here, of course, for people that want to be CRAs or are looking to get into the industry. So definitely a lot of site selection stuff, a lot of feasibility stuff, a lot of advice for PIs and for coordinators. So I hope you enjoy this. Also take out a chance to uh, look at our links in the show notes to all our services. We have the CRA Academy, CRC Academy. We have my Patreon channel, which is only five bucks a month with a monthly mastermind meeting for how to improve your career opportunities, how to improve your business using primarily digital marketing strategies, but we cover a whole bunch of stuff. And then the monthly mastermind kind of keeps everyone accountable to each other. And it's it's a growing group. It's small, but it's growing. So five bucks a month, patreon.com slash Check it out. Text me with any questions you have, 949-415-6256. I appreciate everybody who's checking out the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research. And uh, if you have a site and you want to get more studies, let me know. 949-415-6256. We have a service that helps sites do this all the time. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. recording. Welcome, guys, Site Owner Academy, CRAs on Site Selection Business in Clinical Research. How's it going, Chris? Going well, Dan. I like how Carlos, how Carlos, I guess you're the one that's going to have to narrate this whole thing, because it just says by Dan Spera. Oh, I, <laughs> I just saw that now, too. So, Chris Hopper is uh, not involved in this slide at all. on this one. <laughs> Hey, Dan Fair is not very involved in this slide either. <laughs> uh, okay, so CRAs and site selection business and research. Right now, we're going to start seeing a lot of site selection business. We already have been seeing a lot of site selection business with uh, virtual site selection business with the pent-up demand for the new studies starting up. So, yeah, I know Monica's doing one today, one tomorrow. One next week, just for one of our sites, and then we have other sites doing more as well. So uh, this is good, good stuff. So what do you think about site selection business, Chris? Are they, are, do you still get nervous when uh, you're about to have a site selection business? Not really. I mean, if it's a study that I really, really, really want, uh, maybe a little bit then, but for the most part, no. Okay. But when you first started out, were you nervous? Of course. Of course. What were you nervous about? Um, Every aspect you could think of. Um, We're going to say something wrong, and we're going to say something incorrect, stupid, dumb, uh, not know the answer to a question, um, and then all of this culminating into we don't get the study. Uh Uh-huh. So your fears, and were, were your, did your fears ever prove to be true? Um, 
No, not really. Um, I mean, of course, we've had site selection visits in which we didn't get to study. Um, but not that I'm aware of, did it have ever have anything to do with what I said? Um, ah, it was always something else. Right. There's only two. There's only two site selection visits. That, well, actually, there's three. There's three site selection visits I can recall in which we didn't get to study. Um, <laughs> one was, which was really funny. I had uh, Carlos fill out the feasibility questionnaire for the study. Um, yeah. And he, I don't even know why they came to our site if they knew that uh, these numbers were fabricated, but he put that we could randomize like 6,000 patients for a schizophrenia study. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, and they came, they did, they did the site selection visit, but when I explained to her, I think he was just confused and that's how many people are in the general area with schizophrenia. She, I mean, she just wasn't buying any of this. So we didn't get that study. Wow. Um, so that's was, a point. Don't put crazy numbers on your survey and pay attention to what you're filling out because he probably just thought, okay, what, you know, he probably thought the question was, how big is your database? Uh, right. Like your entire database or something. Right. And so he put right. 6,000. When in reality, uh, you know, that was another question. And you can make mistakes like that. Absolutely. But even there, 6,000 in your database of schizophrenics is quite large. Um, regardless, you're right. I mean, don't, don't put ridiculous numbers through your answers. Um, but really, why would they even come out, though? Why would they even schedule the site selection visit if they know these numbers can't be correct? You understand what I'm saying? Very odd. Yeah, I'm um, thinking maybe they've never um, really looked at... Uh, uh, yeah, what the answers were until the CRA came. I suppose that's maybe if the, if the CRA is like a contractor, um, you know, she would still want to come out. Right. Uh, yeah, so just uh, interesting, interesting. And then, of course, uh, there's other uh, there's other dynamics at play here as far as why you may or may not get a study and. Another study we, did, we didn't get was that cocaine study, but we were in a really rough neighborhood at the time. And the CRA just said, you know, I'm not confident giving you the study here. Okay, so, yeah. I remember that study. Yeah. All right. well, I mean, well, there's things out of your control as well. Yeah, just proof that um, you don't necessarily want to, like, uh, buy into your fears, but it's normal to have them. Absolutely. And, uh, in in the book, I'm I just finished reading a book called The Five Second Rule by Mel Robbins, and what she says actually, it's a really good book. But what she says specifically about fear and anxiety is, hey, instead of trying to fight it because it's you know it's always going to happen, like. She uses the example of public speaking, but we can use the example of site selection visits. I mean, you're always going to be nervous. You can't really talk yourself out of it. So rather than fighting it, uh, just go with it. Say, you know what? Um, I'm excited. Because nervous and excitedness are the same thing. 
It's just how your brain processes it. And if your brain doesn't have a reason for something, it starts to panic because it starts looking for problems. So rather than being nervous, she just counts back from five, five, four, three, two, one. I'm excited. And at least you're giving your brain a reason to focus on why you're feeling this way. Because sometimes being nervous is just a negative uh, cycle. Like you're nervous and then you like, you're feeling nervous. You're that now you're feeling more nervous because you're feeling nervous. And if you just transfer that to being excited, uh, at least your brain will have a reason why it's feeling that way. Because when it doesn't have a reason for it, it starts panicking. Sure. So are you saying that you still get nervous for site selection visits? Uh, if it's a study I really want, yeah. Okay, so you're like me. Yeah, if it's a regular study, I'd know. But, you know, if, and now I don't really have to do them. Like, it's usually Monica or somebody else. Sure. Um, but when I when I have to be, like, the main person, I still get a little nervous. I wouldn't say nervous, but I think I channel it more into being excited, and then I talk too much during well, the season. I, I get over it. I think with as with anything else, I think when you're unaccustomed to something, you're more likely to panic or be nervous. I think the more yeah. that you do something, the less likely you are to be nervous or panic. I think so, too, but... You know, some people are just wired, like, to always feel nervous. Sure. Um, I'm more, I probably fall more into that spectrum. Um, but the way I make up for it is just talking a lot because I guess I've been doing the I'm excited thing uh, without knowing what I was doing. <laughs> but the book kind of explained. Yeah, the book gave the strategy for what I was already doing. But I was like, hey, that makes sense because that's what I kind sure. of do anyway. Sure. That makes sense. So it's a good book, Five Second Rule. It's a good listen. On all. I actually listened to it on Audible. All right, so we have four slides to do in 21 minutes. You have to be off at 1230, right? Oh, yeah, this will be a piece of cake. All right. And people will, hopefully, they enjoy this replay. So, hey, maybe this is a good enough uh, for a podcast, too. I might put this on the podcast. A little sure. Site Owner Academy preview. Uh, and for the YouTube as well. Why not? Yep. So what's the next slide? Did we go through this site selection visit slide already? Uh, no. Ah. One of the things that monitors encounter during site selection visits is that many sites either overlooked or did not have access to the inclusion exclusion criteria when they completed the feasibility surveys. Now, you're supposed to have access to this. So probably the former is the more likely culprit. The sites overlook the IE criteria. Um, so one of the reasons sites complete feasibility surveys without considering IE criteria is they're waiting to hear more details about a study during the site selection visit. So you're supposed to fill out the IE criteria, but sometimes they don't give you that. And so this is the whole purpose of doing SSVs is really to confirm what you've been putting down on your feasibility surveys. So, uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, uh, I'm pretty sure I've filled out feasibility questionnaires in the past in which I did not have access to all of the IE. They just gave you the points that you needed to be aware of for filling out the feasibility questionnaire. Okay. I, I'm pretty sure that's happened. 
where you don't get a, like a protocol synopsis to give you the actual inclusion exclusion criteria within the feasibility questionnaire. Like they say, consider these three points of IE. Would you be able to enroll patients? Something like that. Right. Hmm. Okay. But I'm not positive. I wouldn't bet my life on this, but I'm I'm fairly certain that's happened before. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So next slide. Uh, at site selection visits, sites that are not familiar with study criteria have the opportunity to revise enrollment projections based on exclusion inclusion criteria that was reviewed. And this is really done with uh, generally like when the monitor presents the um, protocol, they'll, they'll do it with the PI ideally. Mm. And what they want to get from the PI is how many patients they think they can enroll within the next six months, 12 months, et cetera. And then also very important, how quickly they think they can randomize their first patient. Um, that's a big, we, Chris, you and I spoke to just about every CRO at bio last year in 2019. Yep. And they all said this last bullet point here was super important, how quickly they can enroll their first patient. Sure. And I mean, we've had, we, even before um, discussing this with all the different CROs, we've had, um, we've had direct examples of this at our sites, right? Where you'll get a call if you haven't um, enrolled a patient after about three months into the study. Hey, uh, we're going to have to shut your site down if you're not, if you don't enroll somebody relatively quickly. And they give you usually a time frame. Um, it doesn't always happen, but that has happened. Mm -hmm. in which they want you to enroll fairly quickly. Otherwise, they'll consider shutting your site down. That's right. Uh, very, very important. So these things will definitely come up. They come up on the feasibility survey, and they'll come up again during the site selection visit. And, you know, this is when you also, as the site, you have the opportunity, if you're the PI or if you're the coordinator, you have the opportunity to ask questions about the study. Show that you're interested. You know, have, try to come up with something like a question. And if the monitor doesn't have an answer, guess what they do? They write it in their report, and it becomes an action item on the monitoring report for the sponsor. So then the sponsor knows, hey, this site's interested, and maybe it's actually a good question that they haven't considered. You know, and then maybe they have to revise the IE criteria or something. Who knows? Yep. But it's always better to actually be interested in the study, if at all possible, and ask you good questions. Uh, well, I've done site selections as a CRA, and um, just about every single time, actually, the PI asks questions. So that's a good thing. And and sometimes the other staff ask questions too, like the coordinators or the sub-eyes. So it's always good to have an interest in the study. Don't just sit there and listen and nod your head, which is the temptation if you're new at this. Um, like, I, I understand if you don't have much experience with research, the temptation is to just be quiet and not say much. But... 
you don't need experience and research to ask questions about that therapeutic indication. So encourage your PI, you know, hey, I know Mr. or Mrs. PI, you don't have very much research experience, but feel free to ask questions about the medication or the medical condition as it relates to uh, the protocol or the IE criteria, because you don't need research experience to ask those kind of questions. Yeah. And usually people are extra nervous because they don't have as much experience either in research altogether or in that particular therapeutic indication. I'd also also add that I think it can be difficult for very experienced sites as well. I'm just speaking from you know my own shoes here. Um, after doing the same indication, same uh, indication site selection visit for the umpteenth time, it gets rather boring. Right. How many so, times did you do it? I'm just saying many, many times, right? If you've done the same site selection visit or let's just say schizophrenia, since we've already discussed schizophrenia, that you've done, this is your 15th time doing a schizophrenia site selection visit, it gets rather boring. Um, right. No, I was just joking about umpteenth. Right. Uh, just some uh, random number. No, that's just a random number. But the oh. point is, is you're right. To show engagement, it's it's for anything, not just site selection visits, but for anything. To be engaged shows that you're genuinely interested, or or maybe you're good at pretending you're interested, right? But it show it shows that you're interested, um, right? And people people respond to that better, right? Than to see people yawning and uninterested. <laughs> Uh, that, that and, doesn't and you promote. That, you do see that happen too. People yawn. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm sure you can attest to this. Any uh, investigator meeting I've ever been to, it's it's a real struggle to stay awake. If you sit in those right. meetings all day, I mean, it really is. Right. And that's true of most people in the meetings because if you look around, it looks like everybody's half asleep. Right. So. Um, yeah, at those things, you know, uh, investigator meetings are different. I think it's more, uh, it goes less noticed if you're not interested there. Sure. Um, but when the when the spotlight's on you at a site selection visit, I mean, there's no one really else there. It's you, and you should be interested. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> you're not going to lose. You're not going to lose the study at an investigator meeting for being. Uh, Unengaged. Or no, disengaged. but it is possible. It is possible to almost lose a study at an investigator meeting. I have for other reasons, <laughs> right? For other reasons. Yeah. And you better clarify again. This isn't something you did. No, it's not something I did, but something I had to deal with. And that's a good yes. episode for another day. Good podcast. Absolutely. Um. Okay, so I think we're done with slide three, slide four. You want to read slide four? I'll do slide five. Okay, you'll do slide five? Okay. Let's do Sorry, slide I just four. put some food in my mouth, so I don't want to read. Okay, re reassessing site capabilities. So, site selection visits are the appropriate time for monitors to ask the PI if the numbers on the feasibility survey are reflective of what you put in the feasibility. So, basically, they're confirming is 
what you put in the feasibility survey accurate. That's really what the monitor are there to do, not just for patient population and demographic, but also they're going to do like an actual tour of the site and uh, they're going to look at all the staff members, at least their CVs, if they're not there in person, and look at their GCPs and look at the experience that they all have. Uh, and then they're going to ask the PI again. You know, basically they're going to ask the PI and the coordinator to confirm everything that's on the survey. Yep. And so it's important mm -hmm. that you and your PI or whomever else is going to be talking are on the same page. So if possible, try to have a copy of your feasibility survey that you did. And I know these days the vast majority of them are done online, right? On like SurveyMonkey type of thing. Yeah, electronic paper. Um, but you can save a copy usually. Yeah, usually you can, but if you can't, you should just be screenshotting each time you screenshot your screen each time you finish a, a page. Uh, that's always a good practice to have. Unless you can remember the numbers and you guys are always on the same page. But when, when sites are newer, and the temptation is, or not the temptation, the tendency is to kind of be off like the staff member are not all on the same page and you don't want to you don't want to give off that impression that everybody thinks something differently about your site database and the experience like if the PI says that they only have 1 year of research experience and the coordinator says they have 10 you know something's off i mean make sure you guys are on the same page same thing with patient numbers if the PI says Hey, we only have 100 patients in our database for this inclusion exclusion criteria and the coordinator says we have a thousand you know what's the explanation maybe the pi understands it based on the ie criteria and the coordinator is thinking overall how many subjects but you have to communicate these things to the monitor because discrepancies like this are usually red flags uh and i guess we should have started the, this presentation with this statement to make you a little less nervous. If they are already doing a site selection visit, you pretty much already have the study. It's just a formality. Well, unless you screw it up. And the way you screw you it up is by demonstrating that you don't know what you're talking about and that you're not interested in the study, that you can't enroll, and that you don't know what you're doing. Those are basically the reasons for not getting the study at the site selection visit. Well, like and what we were discussing on the first slide, I mean, there's there's sometimes reasons outside of your control as well. Like, again, that cocaine study and being in the wrong neighborhood for a cocaine study. Right? That's, if your office building is in, a, is, in a, is in an area that's not conducive to the study, then yeah, you may not get that study when the CRA comes out and sees this. Oh, correct, correct. Well, there can be some some reasoning why you would get the study outside of your control, but that's very limited. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, we're right. making good, good progress here. So the final slide. So we're on slide five now? Yeah, we're on slide five. Okay, so additional considerations. I'll keep my word and read the slide five here. Additional considerations. The number of studies that a site has can impact the amount of time that a site can dedicate to a new study. Um, absolutely. So 
if a site has one study, obviously they can dedicate all their time to that one study. If, if a site has 10 studies and they're all currently enrolling, well, uh, all 10 are probably going to be impacted. Um, and my, we've done uh, videos on this in the past, right, on how to determine which study should get the majority of your attention as a site. Yeah, we've um, done webinars on this, actually. Yeah. Um, but essentially, yeah, time for one of those again sometime soon. Sure. But I think really, first and foremost, it boils down to economics for the site, right? So, which one's going to have the greatest economic impact on that site um, is probably which is the study that's going to get the most attention. Um, if a if a site has one study in which they could make $2 million off of, and then they have a bunch of other studies that they can make $10,000 off of. I can tell you which study is probably going to get the most attention. No? Right. Of course. Of course. Of course. Right. I mean, budget is, I wouldn't say everything, but it's a, a large portion of uh, where the sites that put their priorities. I mean, remember, most of these sites are for-profit institutions. You know, outside of universities and academic centers, but uh, yeah, most most sites are for profit. So obviously, they're they exist to be in business, and they exist to make a profit. Um, but there are other factors as well, uh, of namely the ability to enroll those kind of patients, and uh, also the um, uh, the difficulty of the study itself, the complexity of the study. And I would say there's probably one other factor there. That's the interest of maybe the PI of, on the study. Um, I mean, there's many doctors that are actually very interested in, in the research. Um, so they may have a little bit more interest in enrolling in those studies in which they're obviously more interested in. Um, that would impact as well, I think. Like, for example, we have a PI that was interested in a study, not that he really helped enroll in it, but I don't know if you recall, but we had a, was it an Alzheimer's study? Was it Alzheimer's, Dan? Global? The PI? Alzheimer's study? Okay. There was a study that, uh, I don't want to say his name, but that our PI was interested in. Um, oh, that's right. That's right. Right? Was that Alzheimer's? Uh, yeah, it was. He actually brought it on. He had a really good relationship with the sponsor. So he, which is very unusual for him, because he kind of just lets us pick whatever studies we want. Right. Um, this particular case, he really liked the sponsor. I guess he had a good relationship with the sponsor. And he assumed that, I mean, he had no idea how difficult it would be to enroll. All he heard was the diagnosis. And yep. he told them, oh, yeah, we got tons of these kind of patients, which is true. We did, but we didn't look at the complexity of the study. I mean, yeah, like maybe he had like 200 patients with that diagnosis, but like maybe two of them would qualify for the study. Right. Right. And these are not patients that are that are interested in participating to begin with. And plus, you have to deal with their families. 
and all kinds of things. So uh, that's a perfect example, actually, of the numbers don't necessarily mean you're going to do well on that study. Mm-hmm. Right. The general numbers. Perfect example. Perfect example. Also an example of a PI being interested in a given study um, and, and putting their weight behind that study, but not really understanding all, what's all involved. Um, but anyhow, so moving on, uh, coordinator time should be taken into account based on the number of studies that the site has. Um, right, so it's funny, I just had this conversation. Um, we took on a new client, the, I don't know if you recall Dan, but he's a pilot in the military. Um, he was just asking me yesterday, how do we determine when a coordinator is starting to be overworked? And I, and I told him we've done webinars on this, podcasts uh, on this, number of things on this, so review that. But essentially, um, what would you say is a quick version of how do you determine if coordinators overwork? Ask them. Yeah, that's the way I. That's so. There's a couple ways. It requ- one of them requires you to actually be involved in the day-to-day functioning of that site. So if you're there and you're in the trenches, you should know. I mean, chances are you're working, at least you're overseeing very closely your coordinator and the workflow and what's going on and what the challenges are. I remember back in the early days of me running my site, I probably stopped being as involved like around 2013, right around the time that we started our site network, actually. Mm-hmm. so. I, I sacrificed being involved in the trenches for growth, which is good. I mean, I don't regret that. But, you know, when I was in the trenches, I understood when a coordinator would tell me, like, I already knew when they were overworked. And People I was told waiting. you. Yeah, I was just waiting for them to tell me. Right. I already knew it. And uh, so I was like, when they told me, I'm like, yeah, I know. You know, or, or sometimes I'd be proactive and say, look, I know you're working a lot. Like, do you need me to hire someone else or do you need me to, uh, like, do more myself with you? Like, tell me what we need because we're not going to not enroll more patients. Right. Uh, so let me know what we need. I can hire someone, but that's, you know, it takes more work as well. I mean, having those kind of discussions, if you actually know what's going on, you're not going to be surprised. Now me today, I have no idea if uh, a <laughs> coordinator is overworked. I mean, I truly have no idea. Right. And I should be talking more to them. Like, ideally, I would be talking to them on a weekly basis. Hey, what's been going on? What's your workflow? Um, but it requires some trust on, on that person that they're not just telling you they're overworked when they're not. Or maybe they think they're overworked, but it's not really a being overworked. That's just normal. Um, so it's it's a lot harder when you're not managing directly the study. And I think you're now relying on monitoring letters, looking at the action items, how many are still ongoing and for how long they've been ongoing. That's a really good sign. Uh, I mean, if you have open action items ongoing, for like six months, either that coordinator is 
not doing the work for some reason or they don't have time. And so that's more of a hint um, in combination with having these conversations. But nothing replaces just being there in the trenches. Um, I don't know what you have to say about this. Well, I agree. I think you need to have a fairly good relationship with with these individuals in terms of trust. Um, because if you, get a, if you get a really bad monitoring report for a study, is it the coordinator's overwork or is it that you need to fire the coordinator, right? Which is it? Right. So you, need, you need to be able to have um, some sort of trust there in which you can rely on what the coordinator's telling you if you're not going to be involved at all as a site owner. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I think if that's the case, you probably want to have a conversation. Hey, let me know if there's ever anything that I can, that I need to do for you or we need to hire somebody, let me know, right? You want to be proactive to a degree and let them know that, you know, these resources are available should they be needed. You need to let me know. Absolutely. I guess that's a good place to end it. Uh, I have another interview coming up. All right. Uh, But uh, we can stop the recording. And thank you very much, Chris. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it was a very busy Site Owner Academy today. Lying on monitoring letters, looking at the action items, how many are still ongoing and for how long they've been ongoing. That's a really good sign. Uh, I mean, if you have open action items ongoing for like six months, either that coordinator is not doing the work for some reason or they don't have time. And so that's more of a hint um, in combination with having these conversations, but nothing replaces just being there in the trenches. Um, I don't know what you have to say about this. Well, I agree. I think you need to have a fairly good relationship with with these individuals in terms of trust. Um, Because if you get a get a really bad monitoring report for a study, is it the coordinator's overwork or is it that you need to fire the coordinator, right? Which is it? Right. So you, need, you need to be able to have um, some sort of trust there in which you can rely on what the coordinator's telling you if you're not going to be involved at all as a site owner. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I think if that's the case, you probably want to have a conversation. Hey, let me know if there's ever anything that I can that I need to do for you or we need to hire somebody, let me know, right? You want to be proactive to a degree and let them know that, you know, these resources are available should they be needed. You need to let me know. Absolutely. I guess that's a good place to end it. Uh, I have another interview coming up. All right. Uh, But uh, we can stop the recording. And thank you very much, Chris. Absolutely, and uh, was a very busy Site Owner Academy today. So hey everybody, thank you very much for listening to another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. Again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Make sure you leave a review if you could be so kind, please. Uh, And also go to theclinicaltrialsguru.com if you're interested in learning more about who I am, who some of my guests are. Uh, You can have access to some of my YouTube videos. Uh, I do a lot of videos about clinical research. So go to theclinicaltrialsguru.com and you can also call or text me anytime, 949-415-7000. 
888-6256. Also follow me on any social media platform. It's Dan Svera. And you can also email me if you'd like, dan at theclinicaltrialsguru.com. Thank you very much.